Welcome to the Lorax, the podcast where we take beloved fictional settings and look at them a little bit too deeply through a sociological, historical and philosophical lens. Uh, my name is Alex and I'm joined by my good friend... Hey, I'm Khalil, or King Cole as you might hear Alex refer to me. And this is the sixth episode of the podcast, which at the top I want to dedicate to the 100 people who listened to the first five episodes of the podcast. We love you. We love you all. <laughs> uh, some of you might be us <laughs> listening to it, but uh, we love each and every one of you. Thank you for joining us on this crazy ride. Um, we, and we're done with Warhammer 40,000. We're done, yeah, absolutely. Now we're going to go all over the place uh, on the, the whims and fancies of whatever uh, catches our attention in the zeitgeist. Um, but the first of our episodes in the post-Warhammer world is on Castle in the Sky, created by the famous Japanese animator Hayao Miyazaki, regarded uh, by many as the godfather of Japanese animation. Uh, he has created many of the most beloved uh, animated films to come out of Japan, uh, from his studio, which he co-founded, called Studio Ghibli. Now, Castle in the Sky is his or is his third film, after Castle of Cagliostro, which was in 1979, and Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind from 1984. Those first two he made uh, in a separate studio before he founded Ghibli, uh, and Castle in the Sky was his first film. And although not perhaps as popular in the Western world, Cast in the Sky is regarded by many in Japan as the best animated film of all time. Usually, and it shows how good Miyazaki is, argued uh, it's the ones that it comes up against are two other Miyazaki films, <laughs> Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away. They're like the top three animated films of all time in Japan. So before this episode, I had seen uh, Mononoke and Spirited Away but I hadn't seen Castle in the Sky. No. Uh, which is interesting because I also I think Castle in the Sky was probably the last Miyazaki film that I saw as well. Uh, maybe by dint of it being the first one that Ghibli made, and Mononoke in particular, and Spirited Away, being two extremely popular films in when released in the West. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, if you go back and listen to, for example, Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind, like the English dub is remarkably bad compared to, the, <laughs> compared to the, the English dub which has Patrick Stewart in it um, is bad it's just bad um, and it, I think Castle in the Sky is on the, the curve upwards for the, for good western dubs for, for Miyazaki films interesting because um, I started watching it in Japanese audio with my housemate and then she looked up from her phone having been googling the film and found out that Mark Hamill is on the English dub. And so we switched over to that for a bit. I found him to Mark Hamilly, and I just had to go back to Japanese. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hamill appears on quite a few uh, Miyazaki films. And by to Mark Hamilly, I mean, like, he's a, you know, he's a talented actor and voice actor, um, but I just couldn't separate him from, like, you know, animated series Batman Joker. Yeah. So... Cast in the Sky is both one of the most popular Ghibli films and also thought of as a film that inspired a lot of tropes and uh, key features you see in a lot of Japanese animation in the following years. Uh, so much so that some people have dubbed it a sort of uh, Laputa effect after the castle in the sky uh, in that it created 
a whole new vein of inspired artists in Japan to create things in that sort of steampunk, diesel punk style. Um, in fact, even Miyazaki himself used a lot of aspects from Cast in the Sky in a lot of his later films. So what we're going to do is we're going to, as always, analyse the film from a load of different perspectives, look at what Miyazaki set out to do with the film, look at how we interpreted what came out of the film. Uh, but first, we're going to run through the plot. Uh, spoilers, obviously. Uh, I can't tell you how long this will be. Maybe I'll edit myself in to say how long this section will be. <laughs> if you if you haven't seen the film, I'm not sure why you want to watch us, listen to us rather, do the plot and the critical analysis in one hour. Watch the film. Like, <laughs> watch the film, have your own opinions, then listen to ours. Yeah, listen to ours and disagree with us. And as always, don't at us. Don't at us, yeah, yeah. Uh, unless it's to say how much you think uh, we are amazing. So the plot of Cast in the Sky, here we go. We're going to go through it very quickly. It's going to be a, a whiplash effect. So Cast in the Sky uh, is set in, I guess what you could call a post-apocalyptic sort of, but post-post-apocalyptic world. Yeah, it's kind of an industrial apocalypse yeah. as opposed to, you know, zombies or, you know, meteor or anything catastrophic or cataclysmic like mm. that. It's sort of, po well, maybe post-ancient civilization because the opening credits... Uh, display um, tapestries and paintings of multiple flying cities and countries uh, that over time throughout the opening credits then land on the ground and people come out of them and then live on the on 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 what well, the surface of the earth implying that there was a previous time when mm -hmm. humanity or some precursor civilization um, floated through the sky on these massive castles yeah I mean even before that it shows the industrial kind of development that led to those flying castles. Yeah. You, know, they, you, you see the, the first seeds of industry, the first attempts at flight, and then it burgeoning to the point of having, you know, cities covered in propellers flying through, flying through the sky. Yeah, it's got to the point now where the people who landed on Earth uh, have, in, have grown technology to the point where they can fly again, but only through the use of airships. And it's on one of those airships that we meet the protagonist. So Sheeta, who is the uh, the main protagonist of Cast in the Sky, uh, she is a young girl who has a magical crystal pendant, and the film opens with her captive on a huge airship flying through the sky. Now, as we're seeing things from Sheeta's perspective, the airship she's flying on is attacked by a group of pirates, uh, led by a pirate captain called Dola. Uh, these pirates are also flying miniaturized uh, airships. In the battle, uh, Sheeta is separated from both her captors and the uh, and the pirates, and she falls from the airship, but her magical pendant saves her at the last moment as she falls into the midst of a mining town, where she's discovered by Pazu, the other, uh, the secondary protagonist, I could, you could say, who is an orphan boy, a uh, child labourer, a mine engineer, dovekeeper, and wannabe aviator, uh, a lot of strings to his bow. He discovers her. Um, and through them talking, Sheeta reveals her connection to something called the Lost City of Laputa. And uh, I'm, I'm just going to interject here because I had a really hard time uh, not laughing at that name. Um, because in Spanish, that means the bitch. <laughs> or... Oh, yeah. Puta, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's true, yeah. I, don't really... I actually hadn't seen it that way. But, uh, yeah. So, uh, Lapita, it, oh no, you've done it now. <laughs> it's all right. If you pronounce it that way, it's yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just don't put the accent on the U. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> Lapita is this um, 
I guess, it, it, well, along the same things as, in, in, as the Spanish, an El Dorado-like uh, city, an Atlantean-style city, um, said to float through the sky, which uh, Pazu's father, in fact, died trying to prove uh, that it existed. He uh, died in a, in a storm. Uh, Shita and Pazu then team up uh, and have to outrun both the pirates and the government agents who had originally kidnapped Shita. Um, led the government agents, this is, are led by a man called Colonel M Muska, or Muska, uh, who also is seen to be looking for Laputa and discover its secrets. While they're being attacked uh, and helped by the residents of the mining town, they fall into a mine shaft, uh, but are saved by the crystal, which uh, powers up and lowers them safely in into the depths of this mining pit. In the tunnels, uh, they meet a man called Uncle Pom, who shows them deposits of the same glowing crystal uh, that uh, Sheeta wears around her neck. It's it's called Ethereum. Not the cryptocurrency. Not the cryptocurrency. A-E-T-H-E-R-I-U-M. Um, following that, Sheeta reveals to Pazu that she has a secret name tying her to Laputa, uh, proving that the city is real, uh, but that uh, but as that happens, the two of them are captured by the army and imprisoned. And I believe at this point um, we discover that Sheeta is um, La Laputan royalty. Yes, she's not just uh, you know she's not just someone connected with that city vaguely. Um, she's on the run royalty. Yeah. So while captured, um, she's shown by Muska a dead robot that fell from the sky. Um, huge robot, uh, bearing the same insignia as her crystal. Uh, oh, and that's when she's revealed to be the heir to the throne, mm -hmm. in fact. Um, and these robots, uh, this robot is, is fucking dope. Um, <laughs> it's a kind of biomechanical, uh, like, long-limbed with these kind of thin rays on its arms. Yeah. And this robot is pretty damaged because it's fallen from the sky so it's you know missing half of an arm and half of a leg yeah but the, you can see the the interior of the robot um is kind of yeah almost biological in its kind of tenderly cabliness yeah so uh muska agrees to release pazu under the condition that shita then guides the army which the government controls uh to laputa Pazu then returns home, dejected, uh, but is captured by the Sky Pirates, by Dola's gang, who are preparing to fly to the fortress and take the crystal themselves. Uh, Pazu uh, joins up with them in a sort of a, a what starts out as a as like a, a agreement of convenience, uh, but morphs later on into a general, uh, I guess, what's the team teamwork situation. Like originally, he's mm -hmm. sort of they capture him and he, they're using him, but then they're sort of a a, a tur uh, what's the word like a change of their attitude towards him uh, and to Sheeta. Um, meanwhile, back in the in the prison, Sheeta um, recites uh, an ancient phrase which her mother taught her, uh, and inadvertently activates the magic of the crystal and reanimating the robot. Uh, it's worth probably pausing at this point that um, Sheeta has memories of her mother and I think her father living on a farm, um, a nice peaceful farm away from everything. Yes, um, and they they seem to be living a you know very very humble life mm. in that in that situation. Um, like they're yeah they're either in exile or hiding or something. Yeah. So the robot reanimates and immediately protects Sheeta from the army, and essentially goes mad, <laughs> destroys <laughs> the entire fortress. It in, goes sicko mode. It, it goes mad. <laughs> it goes crazy. So this this robot has 
uh, it, it's kind of humanoid-ish, yeah. um, but it has uh, kind of... <laughs> where it's... Uh, like, I don't know, where it's chest area would be uh it has these kind of rocket thrusters that help yeah. it fly it has uh two eyes that are kind of unevenly sized one of them turns out fires a big broad laser and one of them fires this like narrow focused laser and it just it wrecks shop yeah basically anything that laser touch touches explodes yeah. Uh, <laughs> Dope. And it become it, it it becomes a real scene of chaos as well because uh at this moment Pazu and Dola and the Sky Pirates fly into rescue Sheeta and I think there's there's a scene where Sheeta is uh frightened and alarmed by the destruction being caused by this robot because although you know it's a kids film so there's no like a real overt death being shown but there's it there's a there's a it's a it's a high moment of tension you know the, this fortress mm-hmm. is up in flames there's people panicking and running away this robots going ham on everything and she's can't really stop it from doing so and the army are firing you know artillery shells into mm. it to try and stop it yeah um so Pazu and the sky pirates fly in and they manage to rescue Sheeta, but her crystal is left behind um, which activates and fires a beam into the sky that helps uh, Muska uh, navigate to Laputa, or at least start his navigation towards Laputa using um, the military airship called Goliath, this huge floating fortress. Um, while on board with the Sky Pirates, uh, Shizu... Shizu... <coughs> while... <laughs> was just... Yeah, okay. Shizu is their ship Sh- Shizu and pa- <laughs> pa- Peter... Um... <laughs> While on board with the Sky Pirates, Sheeta and Pazu uh, bargain to be taken aboard and basically uh, become one of the crew by doing odds and ends and, and jobs and things. Um, Sheeta then helps Dolan navigate to Laputa after a few scenes where, you know, we get to know the Sky Pirates a little bit better. We get to know the the, uh, the motivations of Dola um, and the, you know, how to get to see how Pazu and Sheeta sort of integrate themselves with the crew and it's sort of a, a heel a heel turn sort of you know they go from being mm-hmm. these like antagonists to being more uh i guess not not necessarily protagonists but allies in a sense yeah although we'll talk about this later but there are some elements of that relationship that i don't like <laughs> <laughs> so uh Sheeta actually also saw the crystal's directions to Lapita and helps uh, helps the pirates navigate to the, the floating city. Um, they eject Sheeta and Pazu in a good way. Ejectors, have, I just realised it's a very... <laughs> they, just show, they don't throw them out of the airlock. Um, they uh, place them in a crow's nest, which is detachable from the airship that the pirates use, um, to keep watch. And then the pirates' airship is attacked by the military airship Goliath. And the, um, this crow's nest is a, it's a kind of glider-type thing. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, during the, the ensuing battle, Dola detaches the crow's nest, um, which then glides uh, through a storm, uh, w- upon which Pazu um, notices a massive cloud which uh, matches the descriptions and the drawings of his father, uh, and realises that um, that's where his father saw Laputa, and that's where they need to go. We get some very nice uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey style visuals as they go through the, the storm cloud. and mm. Um, Pazu has, you know, this kind of vision. And then uh, they make it through this cloud and land safely on Lapita, which they find this this, this enormous floating city, huge. Um, but it's it's deserted uh, aside 
from some uh, fauna and small birds and animals and uh, a peaceful guardian robot. And the robot is of the same kind of model as the one that fell to Earth. Yes. Um, but this one, instead of being aggressive in any way, um, well, not necessarily welcomes, but leads the two of them deeper into the city. Um, they discover that the castle is essentially in ruins, and now at the centre of the island is an enormous tree. Uh, as they're getting to, to discover more about Lapitern and what happened to it, uh, the army arrives and begins uh, immediately looting the castle for all the wealth they can find in the depths of it, um, having all taken Dola's, Dola and her pirate crew captive. Then Muska and his accomplices from the government agencies, shadowy government agencies, uh, betray the army, um, preventing them from communicating with their home bases, capture Sheeta and take her into the bowels of the castle. Um, Pazu then has to free Dola's gang and pursue Muska. And this this um, descent into the heart of the of the castle has some really really cool kind of sci-fi visuals and uh, mechanics. Mm. Yeah, the bottom of the castle is like the epicenter of Lapita's um, knowledge and <coughs> features all the the the, the knowledge and wisdom, uh, which are things that the character Sheeta is enamoured with and, and, and discovers, and also its destructive weaponry, which Colonel Muska is, is after. Mm-hmm. Um, in a confrontation in the bowels of the castle, Muska reveals that he, in fact, is also descended from the, from the Lapitan royal line. Uh, and then demonstrates the city's awesome power by uh, firing into the ocean below, causing a huge explosion, and then destroying the Goliath and all its crew while uh, Sheeta watches. Um, horrified by, by this, Sheeta takes back the crystal and flees from him. Uh, while fleeing, she gives the crystal to Pazu through a gap in the wall, uh, but is then cornered by Muska in Lapita's throne room. Muska tries the uh, the age-old sort of villain... Uh, tactic threatens to uh, threatens Sheeta's life, but says he'll spare her in exchange for the crystal. Fazi then manages to bargain for a short truce, during which Sheeta teaches him another one of the ancient phrases her mother taught her, called the spell of destruction. They recite it together, causing Lapita to begin to collapse. The light of the spell blinds Muska, who falls to his death in the ocean, while Sheeta and Pazu are protected by the roots of the giant tree growing in the centre of the city. While Lapita's bottom falls out, the rest of the castle, along with Dola's glider, is preserved by the giant tree, and the island begins to rise into space. Sheeta, Pazu, and Dola's gang then are able to free themselves and briefly reunite before flying away into the sunset. Well, not, not the sunset, but, you know, the metaphorical sunset. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the film ends there with the with credits showing Lapita rising up into space, um, mirroring the opening credits as well. So that is, uh, watch the film, because that is a real quick and dirty <laughs> to run through of the plot of Castle in the Sky. And also, uh, as beautiful as Alex's words are, um, the, the, fil- the film is full of really lovely details, and, and it's a really kind of beautiful example of, of Miyazaki's work in yeah. terms of the, the characterization and the, the, the filling out of the world that they live in through these little details. Mm. So now we've done that, we're going to go into sort of the themes, inspirations, and, and our own personal thoughts on the film. Um, 
this will kind of be a half and half in terms of both uh, cast in the sky, but also Miyazaki himself. We might do more episodes of Miyazaki films. There might be a running thread through this because a lot of his themes are repeated throughout his films. Um, the guy likes drawing planes. He loves drawing planes and he, lo- <laughs> he loves nature. But we're going to start start off straight away with the, the, the... This is something I actually discovered researching, but the name Laputa um, is derived from originally derived from Gulliver's Travels. Hmm. Um, a book which I've never read, so... No, I remember seeing a TV adaptation of it um, and being when I was a kid and being amused that he puts out a fire on a palace by peeing on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just think there's so many travels. Like, I always... Like, I always hear, whenever Gulliver's Travels inspires something, I'm like, I always think of Gulliver's Travels as when he's big and the people are tiny. Yeah. And that's the only thing I remember. And I'm like, he did this, and this, <laughs> and there's a floating city in this called Laputa that's powered by a giant crystal. It's like, wow, this, he really did travel. Maybe there's an episode in there. Maybe. <laughs> live listen, live watch, <laughs> live read of Gulliver's yeah. Travels. <laughs> Just sitting in silence <laughs> reading. Sitting in silence reading and going, hmm. Every half hour, it's like, oh, interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I think one of the one of the big inspirations here that I, I really stood out to me actually when I started looking at it is a big feature of Cast in the Sky is the mining town where Pazu lives and a lot of um, the uh, the secondary and tertiary characters are from. Uh, it's a place that's built into this enormous gorge. You've got terraced houses running along the cliff tops and also built into the the walls of the of the cliff itself. These little uh, railways running between. Uh, uh, mines and between the places where the people live and it turns out that while planning and researching for castles in the sky Miyazaki actually visited Wales um, ostensibly because he wanted to look at castles uh, and there's a lot of castles Fair. in Wales um, but while he was there uh, in 1984 and 1985 the coal miner strike was going on in the UK um, and Miyazaki seeing the coal miners uh, working together as a community to try and uh, fight back against government repression really left uh, a lasting uh, impression on him. Um, and you can see that in the film, reflected in the solidarity the people of the mining town show to each other and to Parzu and Shita, even at the point where, when they don't even know what these people are running from, and after they discover they're running from either pirates or the government, uh, help them no questions asked, because they're, you know, one of them. Yeah, it was actually a, a real surprise um, and a nice one to see, you know, because Pazu is set up as a character as, you know, a child labourer in an industrial, like, town. Yeah. Um, and so my head was in the place where it was kind of, I was prepared for there to be all of those kind of cliches of kind of Dickensian, uh, downtrodden orphan. Um, and, you know, his boss is always kind of, you know, when he's at work, kind of yelling at him to, you know, do stuff. But actually, yeah, when, they, when they're running from the pirates and they, they run into, you know, Pazu's boss and, and other members of the community, they are very warm and supportive and protective um, of them, mm. which, if this was a worse film, wouldn't have happened. Yeah, and, like, they're... They're so protective of them up until the point when the army starts shooting at them. They're like defending and going up against the army. And it's only mm-hmm. at the point where bullet, bullets and grenades start coming out that they actually run away. But you know, they, they, you know, they 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 fight back by filling the streets. Pazu's boss has a, a strange manly 
fight with one of the pirates. <laughs> it, th- it is a beautiful fight scene. <laughs> yes. It is um, the most symmetrical fight scene um, I've ever seen. It's st- like it starts off with a kind of a, a grandstanding posturing uh, section where the you know the the the, the biggest of the pirates. Mm. And kind of grimaces and 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 tenses his muscles and his shirt rips a little bit. They've got those very Victorian bodybuilder style. Like, yes, yeah, yeah, barrel chested uh, and big bearded. And then the boss kind of grins and th- this is all done without words. It's mm. all done in uh, growls and, and tenses. Noises. And then his shirt rips even more. Yeah. And then you know they go showboating and and trying to intimidate each other for a while, but very much like kind of. Um, call and response symmetry and then even when it finally comes to blows you know it'll be one of those big you know old timey kind of wind up Popeye punches and then the other one will do the exact same punch back yeah. and it just goes back and forth and back and forth and it's um, I, it took me a, it took me a few seconds to to get into the headspace where I got it mm. um, but once I was there I loved it yeah I, I really love the fact that it has that. It's got these two figures who are and who are drawn in that kind of very old and like nineteen thirties, forties cartoon, like Blotto style. from uh, from Popeye. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and it's a very like classic cartoon uh, visual. Mm-hmm. These two big men punching each other in the head, like 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 they're two fighting those two fighting robots until one one's head shoots <laughs> up into the air. But yeah, the mining town itself in Cast in the Sky is based on, like I said, in mine, mines in Wales, but notably uh, Brig Pit Mine. Um, and if you Google image search that, you'll you'll see that and compare it between the film and and the real life. Um, and also uh, there are parallels with um, some scholars uh, of Welsh nationalism in particular when uh, watching Cast in the Sky, I think that it actually has a lot of... Inf- it has a lot of influence for Miyazaki being around people who were... who Not necessarily were Welsh nationalists, but were people who believed that um, Welsh identity was being um, suffused and, and taken away from them by the wider British government. Because there's a lot of stuff about, you know, these people being... Although, yes, working in an industrial setting, but being very tied to the, the land that they live in and very, like, the, the roots run deep. Um, Which is interesting, um, you know, from a Japanese perspective, um, given the the kind of active homogenization um, effort of you know the nineteenth to twentieth century Japanese governments, yeah, um, because you know the the islands of and around Japan actually you know have had you know lots of uh, ethnic distinct groups like you know kind of you know, Okinawan and um, mm. all sorts of other groups yeah and uh, even on the other side of that as well I think it's something that does appear that appeals to Japanese people perhaps on a cultural level because they are a people who feel very tied to their country as a, as a monocultured country by design and by just the fact the dint of its history as well they're people who very very much feel connected to the country that they live in and um, in the post-isolation period so Japan went through you know a hundred and fifty or two hundred years of uh, enforced isolation mm. um, to try to preserve Japanese culture in the face of um, Western cultural and literal imperialism. Mm. Um, and when that period was finally over, because the Americans turned up with some ships, was it Americans or the British? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, then that is another thing that's kind of that got embedded into parts of the of of Japanese kind of cultural memory um is this 
thing of oh we we've had a very strong connection with our culture and our our home and it is now explicitly under under threat mm. yeah um and the, these parallels also come in the form of uh from from these welsh scholars talk about a, a film and book called how green was my valley which was a a book about the closeness Welsh miners had with um, Wales as a as a as a country and the the land in which they worked. So something for people to who want to read further and think about those parallels to look up. Miyazaki's uh, admiration for the miners in, in Wales is actually encapsulated in a quote when someone asked him about casting the sky and the way he designed the mining town of the film. Uh, he said, "I admired those men." This is him referring to the Welsh miners. I admired the way they battled to save their way of life, just as the coal miners in Japan did. Many people of my generation see the miners as a symbol, a dying breed of fighting men. Now they are gone. Which I think is, is, is another thing of that Miyazaki-esque... Um, because he he grew up in the Showa area, era of Japan, which was the reconstruction era, where Japan was basically... Money, money was pumped into it for construction projects and concreting up rivers and all this kind of stuff and the Japanese economic miracle. But I think it, from his perspective, he saw that as a... Um, uh, a death of sorts. Yeah, yeah, a death of the, the, the nature and the, the, the beauty of the land in which he lived um, at the expense of rapid industrialization. Um, so that's probably one of the most interesting... One, one of the most interesting things I found about Cast in the Sky when researching it. Um, but obviously... One of the major, major themes is the idea of um, the appropriation of destructive technology and the misappropriation of destructive technology as well. Which is something we never see in Japanese fiction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Post-1945. Yeah, it's, 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 it's something that is very interesting and it'll come up multiple times when we do any other Japanese media things is how, you know, obviously a huge, huge events in human history, the, the, the nuclear bombings, but how deeply indelibly written into the japanese psyche those things are yes and how how it echoes you know through decades and decades and decades of fiction which explore our relationship with power our relationship with technology uh the the duality of the of the destructive and creative or destructive and productive uh power of nuclear technology um the kind of unknowable aspect of that power as well. It's kind of borderline magical. Mm. Yeah, and no, no more is the sort of the misuse of this mythological and magical uh, power uh, more encapsulated in Cast in the Sky than in Colonel Muska and the government agents. Um, Who, let me just say, incredible fits. Um, <laughs> imagine, like, imagine the camp CIA. <laughs> yes. You know, they've got, like, cravats and these, like, cute little sunglasses... Uh, different kind of colour palettes. Mm. It's very grey, um, very... Uh, I think that there's a... In Japanese media, there, when depiction of either imperial government power or government power, a lot of it is grey. A lot of it is very um, leather coat. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there's probably, I don't know whether there's an exploration there of like why they go for that aesthetic, which obviously has very, you know... For those who, are, who want to explicitly state Nazi Germany... Uh, compared to the aesthetics of the actual Japanese imperial uh, past, probably there's some uh, some navel gazing that needs to be done there. Yeah, um, and for context, you know, all the government soldiers are dressed in yeah those kind of trench coats and uh, what's the name of the that very 
German helmet from the from those Style days helmet, yeah. with like the kind of long almost kind of like a metal mullet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a little spike on top. Yeah. Uh on those lines <laughs> as well, and in, in, in the, the, the tying up of them that we're talking about, the there's a big betrayal moment where Muska betrays his army, uh turns on them, uh the government agents fight the army, uh and then most of them, if not nearly all of them, are killed in the process of Muska used unleashing the destructive power of Laputa. Um and there's tension throughout the film between Muska and the and the general in charge of the army uh, until he turns on him right at the end. And in fact, I think at the time, the army is also um, wary of Muska and is working actively working against him or trying to figure out what his real uh, his real uh, motivations are. Yeah, we get some politics. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of politics. Um, but there was something that, that twigged in my mind of this idea of the, uh, something that appears in um, 20th century in particular... Uh, Nations who ended up on the the losing side of major conflicts, uh, the idea of a government betraying the army, uh, and the idea of, in the army in Laputa is not exactly sorry the army in Castle in the Sky isn't exactly some sort of like heroic army of like our boys in in green, but at the same as in like oh the nefarious governments betrayed our you know our upstanding. But yeah, so that that's uh, but at the same time it does have that sort of the, that theme of yeah the kind of duplicity yeah yeah and you know you get that in. Um, Russia after they lost the Russo-Japanese War. Mm -hmm. You get that in Germany after they lost the First World War, famously. Mm. Um, you get that a lot in that kind of. You get uh, it in Japan as well. Yeah. When the Japanese, a lot of Japanese soldiers after the surrender by the emperor, um, refused to believe that it was him. Uh, you have those famous examples of Japanese left holdovers in Pacific Islands fighting until the sixties and seventies. Um, in in fact, I believe. If you look at the, a uh, little tangible, if you look at the Emperor's actual speech when he announced that Jap Japan was surrendering, his actual words were uh, along the lines of, um, the, situ the war situation has not evolved to our advantage, were his actual words, <laughs> rather than we've lost or we're, uh, you know, we're surrendering. A little bit of politics on the, that appears in the, in the background of the film. But while we're talking about power, um, something that really... Uh, really resonated with me um, when watching this film. It's quite a quite a deep theme running through it of uh, everyone's kind of questing for great power. Um, not everyone, but but a lot of the figures in the, in the film, and the whole film is about our relationship with power. And the film actually tells us that. Power is a trap. Power constrains you and, and limits you, uh, you know, perversely, um, mm. you know, opposite to what you might think. For example, uh, Sheeta is bound to this magical amulet and hunted for it, not because of the amulet you know, being bound to her necessarily magically, but because of the importance of it to her connection to her royal legacy and to this long lost, you know, civilization. And that is why she gets taken captive by Muska. It's why she gets hunted by pirates. The army's fortress, um, you know, when the robot, you know, starts kicking ass, mm -hmm. their monumental fortress full of walls and guns and soldiers becomes their tomb, becomes a mass grave. And Muska, you know, the main antagonist is so obsessed with obtaining both his 
you know, royal position and the destructive military power of Laputa that it ultimately dooms him. He's literally blinded by the power that he seeks. Mm. And on the, the other side of that coin, of power being a trap, is that it's ultimately only when you let go of power that you are freed. So, for example, going back to Shita, in that moment when they're escaping the, the burning fortress and she loses her amulet, mm. that is actually the point in the film where she goes from being a quite passive character to being an active participant in adventure. Mm-hmm. And Pazu, when he detaches the glider from the top of the pirate airship, that is when they finally get through the storm and they reach Laputa. This thing that they've been talking about and and he's been questing for, for forever. And when Laputa itself, at the end of the film, when it loses that weaponized bulk at the bottom of the castle and it it's free to be its true utopian self, this beautiful flying garden castle. Mm. Yeah, this idea of the kind of entrapping nature of, of power and, and the seeking of power uh, is, is summed up in a quote from Sita quite near the end of the film where she says to Muska, what is a king when his country lies ruined? And I think there's a there's a lot of leaders and rulers nowadays who could uh, who could learn a thing or two from that. And anyway, at the end of the film, Shita and Pazu are freed from the burden of this whole grand mythical story and the 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 other conflicts that come with that. And we're led to assume they go off on the glider and they go live on Shita's farm in peace. Yeah, I'd say there's also other examples with um, the with the decay and the the degradation of Laputa itself. The robot guardians, which we see, uh, create, which seem to have immense destructive power, have taken on a more of a custodial um, role and appear to be free to live their lives looking after little birds and mammals, and that seems to be what they enjoy: and picking flowers for graves and picking flowers for graves. And uh, I would say again with Pazu as well. It, it, obviously, his his driving motivation is is proving his father right, becoming an aviator, discovering Laputa, but also his letting go of the idea of Laputa at the end as well mm-hmm. um, enables him to move on with his life as as the film finishes. Yeah, he's no longer this kind of questing, driven young aviator, and Shita is no longer this you know haunted princess. They're just two kids going and living on a farm. Hmm. And on that, that also comes back to um, to something uh, you brought up in our notes, which I think is really interesting as well, is the, the idea of class and aspiration, because we have two characters here in Shita and Pazu, one of whom is reluctant nobility, obviously lived in the countryside with her family in exile, uh, uh, which she didn't know at the time, uh, someone who's striving to get away from the their birthright and their privilege, versus a character who is starting from the bottom and has their aspirational... Um, uh, wanting to better himself at all, any cost, you know, like that, like I mm-hmm. said, trying to uh, prove his father right, uh, become a great aviator because he's in this uh, this mining town. And although, you know, as we said, it's it has those aspects of being one with the, the you know the the nature and stuff. It is still you are still a child child labor at the end of the day. 
Yeah, and it, it, this comes across very clearly in how they have conversations about Laputa. Um, you know, Shita is actually, for a lot of the film, until it's you know threatened by Muska, is actually quite reluctant to seek Laputa, mm. um, and is kind of pulling away and, and really wants to just be hidden and be safe. Whereas Pazu is the one who's all guns, well, all gung ho and and excited and yearning to discover and fly and and find. Yeah, uh, and another thing that um, we should probably bring up is this. Uh, mentioned it at the top about the idea of um, precursor civilizations, ancient aliens. I guess in a way, this. Um, former ideal that uh, it also comes across in a lot of Miyazaki's work um, of you know there was a time when we were we were a lot better connected with nature and uh, with Laputa in particular there's a lot of that um, with a modern mind you look at it and you think oh there's a lot of you get a lot of this now in modern media of this idea of like oh there were aliens before us before us who who made the pyramids or you know or rather taught uh people who weren't the romans or the greeks <laughs> into building monumental architecture because uh, romans and greeks did it on their own obviously because yeah you know, because they're whitish yeah whereas yeah. uh you know all these these brown people couldn't have built these uh, amazing wonders no yeah. it must have been aliens exactly so there's a little bit of that uh, i think in the film it's explicitly said that lapita inspired ancient religions um, the castle obviously is a relic of, of an earlier age of high technology. Um, the symbology on Laputa uses Babylonian cuneiform. A lot of the architecture has got like ziggurats and Babylonian sort of uh, style to it. Uh, it's got a very, it's got a lot of smattering of like ancient stuff because there's also references to the the Hindu script, the Hindu epic Ramayana. Um, in, even in fact that one of the main characters, Sheeta, is close to Sita, who's one of the main, uh, who's one of the protagonists of the Ramayana, and also I think there's a reference to I think the weapon is called like Indra's arrow or something like that, which is I don't remember that part. Which is something from the Ramayana as well. So um, there's a little scattering, not necessarily as bad as like you know as proper Orientalism, where it's just like everything from everywhere to make it seem like a thing, a flavour. But there is that aspect of to, of Lapitan cast in the sky as well. Okay, one more bit, one more bit. Um, another uh, and probably final thing we want to bring up before we get to the, the, a little discussion point at the end here is about uh, gender and relationships. Um, because Miyazaki uh, is a widely recognised as uh, a feminist. Uh, he's A lot of his films, in fact most of his films, feature female protagonists from various walks of life. Uh, and indeed, Shita and Pazu, although there are uh, sprinklings of a, perhaps a, a, a romantic connection between the two of them. It's never ex explicit, mm -hmm. and uh, they very much rely on each other in a very equal egalitarian way. Um, and in fact, Dola, the pirate captain, I think she has a, a scene where she talks about um, uh, the, her role as a, a pirate captain and as a woman. And also, she talks about Sita um, as a you know headstrong girl, um, and says you know she's going to grow up to be like me one day mm. and Miyazaki's described and this, this is held as a good thing yeah and Miyazaki's described his female characters in all of his films as um, and I quote brave self-sufficient girls that don't think twice about fighting for what they believe in with all their heart uh, he's also said that they may need a friend or a supporter but never a saviour and that any woman is just as capable of being a hero as a man and there are some other other explicit conversations about this as well like for example um 
when they when the pirates are coming in to save Sita from the burning fortress, mm. um, the 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 other pirates who are Dola's sons um, are kind of umming and ahhing about about how dangerous it is, and Dola says, "Out of my way! This is the work of a woman," and just rides in on her. Um, Flapter, which is what their little airships are oh, called, cool. which I really liked. <laughs> <laughs> but there was there was one thing that stood out to you, though. Yeah! So, you know, we talked about how um, Pazu and Shita, they live on the pirate's ship for a little bit yeah. and kind of form a, kind of a series of bonds and, and community with them. And we learn a bit about those relationships and the dynamics there, it, there's a lot of. Um, I'm gonna put it bluntly. There's some pedo vibes. Um, the so the the pirates are uh, the like the handful of sons of Dola. Yeah. Um, and they are adults. Yes. They have facial hair. Yeah. They have like, you know, like adult builds. Both Pazu and Shita are, you know, very much. Children. Yeah. They are, you know, Sheeta is, is a girl, not a young woman. There are multiple, multiple, multiple scenes where the pirates will be, you know, discussing, like, how beautiful she is and lusting over her. And, like, you know, um, there's, a, there's a scene where she's working in the kitchen and one of them kind of, you know, a little bit kind of flustered and nervous comes to the door to offer to help so that, just so that he can spend time around her and he discovers that all his brothers had the same idea um and there's uh, there, yeah there, I'm not comfortable with how how sexualized that, that that is portrayed as yeah yeah I think that interestingly from my perspective that I, I never really well I, I saw it as not necessarily well i guess there's there's that victorian-esque kind of like not sexual but romantic aspect to it where like it's like that i think it's because this is another thing that runs through miyazaki not not the pedo stuff but <laughs> uh the idea of uh he has a, a, he, a lot of his films have a very big emphasis on family and the importance of family units and um the connections that happen there and i think that they're I don't know, because like, I know, I remember the scene, I can remember the scene, I can see it in my mind's eye, because he comes in with like a flower mm -hmm. and stuff, and he's like blushing, and it's like, I saw it as like, I saw it as weird, but I never really saw it as like, not necessarily predatory, weird, yes, predatory, no, but sort of that sort of inappropriate, yes, but you know, in terms of... Yeah, like, it, 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 there's no menace in it, yeah. there's not like, you know, there's not a threat of, you know, violence or threat of kind of acting upon these urges in a, in a in a way that isn't consensual yeah. or anything like that but like you know she she doesn't show any no. reciprocating interest and these four or five kind of adult men continue to pursue her mm. I, I would say they are also shown uh not to, not being apologist about it but i'm saying that they are also shown as being quite infantile yes yeah, yeah they are they are um you know boy brain man body yeah yeah, yeah. Like the that sort of you know you get it in in American media usually with uh, and there's a whole another kettle of fish there barrel of fish with like usually people from the like families from the deep south where the mm -hmm. boys are like oh mama right yeah. kind of thing they oh they, tell you what they reminded me of is mom's friendly robot company from yes. Futurama yes yeah and there's probably there probably is a thread in there you know yeah um, which actually brings us on nicely into uh, 
sort of a, a the final third of the podcast where we, we want to talk about something called well we talk about casting the sky's influence on japanese media and also the idea of monomyths um if you're not aware of what a monomyth is it's also sometimes referred to as the hero's journey which is um a template of stories that involve uh, a central character who goes on an adventure has a there's a decisive crisis in which they're victorious usually through the use of something fantastical or magical there's a transformative process in yeah. there they come home changed and uh influence the world in their new changed guise it was a um a study popularized by a um a scholar called joseph campbell who was influenced by the analytical psychology of um carl jung um and he used the monomyth to analyze and compare uh, originally mythology and folklore um, and a quote from Campbell here, this, this is like mid-20th mid, mid 20th century stuff. Uh, a quote from Campbell here says, A hero, um, in my, in my insert here, almost always male, um, ventures forth from the world of the common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. Um, now, when this was initially... Uh, like proposed and, and, and thought about a lot people thought it was great because a lot of western mythology mythological and legendary canon follows this pattern you get a lot of it with things like the iliad or um lots of roman myths uh, or even uh american folklore as well and I, if we if we go for media the most popular and probably held up version of this is star wars mm-hmm. the hero's hero's journey uh farm boy becomes but, space wizard knight yeah saves galaxy yeah um however uh, since a lot of uh, folklorists have said that Campbell's theories have been too broad and simplistic. I mean, think about the quote, that's pretty broad. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why people were initially like, oh my God, it applies to everything because it is, you know, pretty, pretty broad. And it was, like a horoscope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and also beyond that, it applies to stories, human human stories from all time. You know, it's, it's a uh, start problem conclusion mm. really um but so uh, talking about that and and thinking about it because of the influence of cast in the sky the last bit i want to talk about is is cast in the sky the foundation of an anime monomyth in its in its own way because as i mentioned at the top of the show one of the most popular japanese animated films for japanese people consistently ranked at number one or number two in top 100 lists um the the pit there's a point in the film where i think it's she just says the word laputa um, as like part of a spell, um, and it was it became the most tweeted uh, word of all time when uh, in Japan loads of Japanese people tweeted Laputa at the exact time it was said while broadcast on a on terrestrial television. Wow! Um, and also, it's been acknowledged as like a huge inspiration for a lot of people, a lot of following on uh, creators of anime and also video games. Um, I can't remember his name right now, unfortunately, but the guy who created Final Fantasy. Um, Cast in the Sky and uh, and Nausicaa were like major major inspirations for the for basically all of Final Fantasy. So this idea of uh, two main characters going off on an adventure, not necessarily f- like facing their own family and fighting an evil, but discovering a magical place um, and then uh, having a, and an there being some threat. There being a threat to that place, not necessarily mm. to them, but that to that place that they uncover and 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 um, defeat, um, and then having, a, I guess, an open-ended ending where it's not like we've won and we saved the universe and all this kind of stuff, but just sort of like, ah, oh, that that was an adventure we had and we're better off for it. 
um, is something that appears a lot in Miyazaki's films, but I also think in a lot of anime in general. So, I mean, I, I've left this bit in our script open-ended for us to discuss about it because uh, I wanted it to be, be that way. But like, what what are your thoughts on it, Kinko, about this idea? Again, um, the the kind of the broadness, the breadth of that kind of framework does leave it open to, you know, finding examples that fall into it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for example, one of my favourite anime films, Akira. Mm. Um, Came out two years after Cast in the Sky, I think. 1988. But that that's more, like... That does have the kind of, you know, transformative, very literally transformative yeah. uh, aspect to it. But there, you know, there isn't really that kind of um, magical world, you know, other place that is discovered part of that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know whether I'm, you know, prejudicing myself against this thesis, this, this hypothesis of yours, because my mind, as soon as I think of anime film, I go straight to Akira. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I, I just see red motorbike. Skid. Yeah, yeah, the skid, yeah, yeah. I, I would, I would say, uh, Tetsuo Canada, Tetsuo Canada. <laughs> to like to recuse myself as well. I, I want to say it's not. I, I when I first came up with this idea for the podcast, I was like, hmm, maybe. And then when I looked at it, I was like, probably not. And I, but I just kept it in there as an interesting question <laughs> because, yeah, I think that, I think it showed, There's an interesting comparison between maybe films like, I mean, even like Akira, and Cast in the Sky, Mononoke, Spirited Away, where. Um, the crux of the of the film is not about the singular character's journey, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you would if you look at Akira, uh, you wouldn't necessarily say either Tetsuo or Canada were the main character, mm-hmm. and that the the film is about either of them in particular. Um, look at uh, Princess Mononoke. Yeah, I guess that one's more explicit, um, but still two main characters. Yeah. The, the 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 thrust of the film is not about them in particular. Yeah, it's about um, the the world, and that is a you know a magical yeah. kind of uh, a, a place that is the com- that is a, an interface between people, power, and world and nature. Mm. Yeah, kind of civilization and nature, <clears throat> old and new mm. things like that. I guess to some extent, I'm also showing my ass a little bit because. Like all the other examples I'm using are also Miyazaki films, so it's like saying, "Did, did Miyazaki inspire Miyazaki?" <laughs> I think maybe he did. Um, there's probably going to be lots of people who've like, like who've seen a lot more anime films. Yeah, this. actually, you know, this maybe should have gone at the top. But um, disclaimer, you know, I don't know about you, Alex, but I I I like quite a few anime films, but I wouldn't consider myself an anime head. I would. I, it's not a genre that I have like a an encyclopedic knowledge. Off. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I, I, I know a lot more. Before, about anime. <laughs> I watched a lot. I, I watched a lot of and am having a resurgence of watching a lot of shonen anime when I was a teenager. Things like Naruto and Bleach, mm. um, and I love I love Studio Ghibli films. I have a few other a few other uh, anime anime films that I've watched, but again, like I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not by any means a huge fan. So I mean, yeah, I, I think. The interesting comparison here is the idea of this uh, these sets of films, and thankfully we have Akira there to be a non Miyazaki, <laughs> but of of you know of these films having a the theme being a existential threat to uh, 
the you know, the current situation, I guess, the existential threat to the world people live in, as opposed to this person is going to be the hero of the story, and it's all about their growth and change. It's more about the growth and change of the world around them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I would I would say I I would go as far as to posit an alternative hypothesis, mm-hmm. which is that there is an anime monomyth, and that monomyth is having like a two minute long scene where the two main characters just yell each other's names at each other <laughs> because in anime sorry in Akira obviously you have Tetsuo Kanada Tetsuo Kanada yeah. and in Castle in the Sky there is a decently long scene on Laputa where it's Shita Pazu Shita Pazu Shita and like yeah they're like I think they're they're both running separately through the tunnels trying to find each other yeah but I, I think that is perhaps the anime monomyth. The anime monomyth is shouting each other's names at each other. <laughs> yeah. All right. That there you heard it. That's it. Sorry, Japan. Sorry, Japan. Sorry, Japan. And any fans of anything we talk about ever. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was Cast in the Sky. Woo. Yeah, a, a film that I really really liked. Yeah, and I guess we should do more Miyazaki films as well. Um, yeah, we could sprinkle Miyazaki throughout yeah, the rest of the series. Definitely, definitely, because uh, yeah, I think Princess Mononoke is my is is my absolute favorite uh, Miyazaki film. I love that film to death. Um, almost too much to to even try. <laughs> I couldn't even do an episode. Like, You're gonna be weeping on the way. It's mic. so good. <laughs> Just be like, it, it, it's good. The end. That's five minutes of episodes. But. Well, with our next episode, we're gonna be sticking with animation. Um, yes. So if you like radical teenage anthropomorphic animals of no particular description. See you next time. Bye. Do you need a clap sync? <laughs> There's no video. Yeah, but I need it at the waveform. Oh, sure, so you can see where the yeah. bullshit stops yeah. <laughs> and the other bullshit starts. Yeah, basically. Sure. Now I've got to do it again. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>